welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Hi. <laughs> Am I doing the right thing here on the tape? Oh, okay. Um, my name's David Maynard. I am a sexaholic. I'm thrilled to be here. It was a pleasure to be asked. Uh, if you haven't ever had the pleasure of having Bob Rojas uh, harass you, it's just a real delight. Uh, uh, he's been doing this uh, roughly eight, nine months now. So, and uh, and he also uh, has the dubious distinction of being my sponsor. So I'm I'm here under the watchful eyes of my sponsor. Um, and uh, on the way in from the airport this morning, I told Bob that I uh, sat next to a woman who filled up more than her fair share of the two-row seat in the tiny plane, and I was unable to ever get to my books, which were in the suitcase at my feet, and I hadn't done my morning readings. And he said, well, why don't you start with your morning readings? So I think I'll do that, uh, but I'd love some help. Is anybody willing to read? Uh, well, I'll tell you what to read. You don't have to worry about that. Yeah, we'll, we'll take the mic around. And that's right. I should walk with it, actually. Um, I, in my morning readings, I uh, read five uh, books uh, when I read them all, and I, I do reasonably regularly, not every day as I used to. And we'll just start in no particular order. Um, and my pattern is that I read uh, two physical pages. So wherever the marker is in that book, um, if you just start and read the two pages, and you're probably going to go a couple sentences over to the next. Tradition 7. Every AA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Self-supporting alcoholics? Who ever heard of such a thing? Yet we find that what, that's what we have to be. This principle is telling evidence of the profound change that AA has wrought in all of us. Everybody knows that active alcoholics scream that they have no troubles money can't cure. Always we've had our hands out. Time out of mind, we've been dependent upon somebody, usually money-wise. When a society composed entirely of alcoholics says it's going to pay its bills, that's really news. Probably no AA tradition has the labor pains this one did. In early times, we were all broke. When you add this to the habitual supposition that people ought to give money to alcoholics trying to stay sober, it can be understood why we thought we deserved a pile of folding money. What great things AA would be able to do with it. But oddly enough, people who had money thought otherwise. They figured that it was high time we now, sober, paid our own way. So our fellowship stayed poor because it had to. There was another reason for our collective poverty. 
It was soon apparent that while alcoholics would spend lavishly on 12-step cases, they had a terrific aversion to dropping money into a meeting place hat for group purposes. We were astounded to find that we were as tight as the bark on a tree. So AA, the movement, started and stayed broke, while its individual members waxed prosperous. Alcoholics are certainly all or nothing people. Our reactions to money prove this. As AA emerged from its infancy into adolescence, we swung from the idea that we needed vast sums of money to the notion that AA shouldn't have any. On every lip were the words, you can't mix AA and money. We shall have to separate the spiritual from the material. We took this violent new tack because here and there members had tried to make money out of their AA connections, and we fear we'd be exploited. Now and then, grateful benefactors had endowed clubhouses, and as a result, there was sometimes outside interference in our affairs. We had been presented with a hospital, and almost immediately the donor's son became its principal patient and would-be manager. One AA group was given $5,000 to do with what it would. The hassle over that chunk of money played havoc for years. Frightened by these complications, some groups refused to have a cent in their treasuries. Despite these misgivings, we had to recognize the fact that AA had to function. Meeting places cost something. To save whole areas from turmoil, small offices had to be set up, telephones installed, and a few full-time secretaries hired. Over many protests, these things were accomplished. We saw that if they weren't the main, if they weren't, the man coming in the door couldn't get a break. These simple services would require small sums of money, which we could and would pay ourselves. At last, the pendulum stopped swinging and pointed straight at Tradition 7, as it reads today. Thank you very much. Uh, I broke your anonymity. I'm wrong, and I ask your forgiveness. I messed up. Jeez. Um, I'll read from Recovery Continues. I happen to be in the middle of why relationships did not work for me as a sexaholic. No one could have told me there was anything wrong with that way of life for me. You can't take this away from me. The same kind of reaction to my mother's gentle admonition not to play with myself when I was a child. I had to stay in charge. I wanted to control and enjoy my drinking. To give it up would have meant losing one of the more alluring forms of my drug. I would have threatened my very source of life. I needed all those bottles stashed here and there, just in case I ran out somewhere along the line. In recovery, I now see that all of this was living in a two-dimensional world. One whole dimension of my being was shut out in those relationships. They sealed in and reinforced my defective nature. I could not come out into the light. I would have, not, I would have to be changed before I could have true union with anyone. But in that world, I could not change. However, once I stopped acting out sexually in all forms, including relationships, and began to have progressive victory over lust, I began to enter a new dimension, a totally new reality. As I started changing my attitudes toward myself and others, I began acquiring a new set of values. I slowly became a new person, a changed person, a better person. This process is still going on. Recovery. Inside that two-dimensional unreality, I could never have known what the real was like. How could I? But once I was born into the new life, some very profound changes were taking place that would render the old way of life destructive. That way of life had kept me from myself. It was death to me. I no longer wanted what those relationships had to offer. I didn't want to have to pay the price inside me. I often enclose the word relationships in quotes because I challenge anybody, those former partners of mine included, to show me where I was totally relating, that it truly relating, that is, being really intimate with anybody. 
The primary fact that we fail to recognize is our total inability to form a true partnership with another human being, it says in the 12 and 12 and step 4. And if this is true of the alcoholic, how much more so with the sexaholic, whose malady strikes at the very core of his or her relation, relational instincts, attitudes, and behavior. Let's, let's switch to just one uh, page. Maybe go just through that. That one. Down here? Well, start, start top. But. It's meetings. Who's, who else has a book? Why don't you read the first part of that story? Our Southern Friend. <clears throat> Pioneer AA, Minister's Son, and Southern Farmer. He asked, Who am I to say there is no God? Father is an Episcopal minister, and his work takes him over long drives on bad roads. His parishioners are limited in number, but his friends are many, for to him, race, creed, or social position itself makes no difference. It is not long before he drives up in the buggy. Both he and old Maud are glad to get home. The drive was long and cold, but he was thankful for the hot bricks which some thoughtful person had given him for his feet. Soon supper is on the table. Father says grace, which delays my attack on the buckwheat cakes and sausage. Bedtime comes. I climb to my room in the attic. It is cold, so there is no delay. I crawl under a pile of blankets and blow out the candle. The wind is rising and howls around the the house. But I am safe and warm. I fall into a dreamless sleep. I am in church. Father is delivering his sermon. A wasp is crawling up the back of the lady in front of me. I wonder if it will reach her neck. Shucks, it has flown away. At last, the message has been delivered. Quote, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works, unquote. I hunt for my nickel to drop in the plate so that mine will be seen. Okay, we're nearly there. I'm going to read that. Meeting guidelines. Participation guidelines. There is no crosstalk. We don't interrupt others. However, the leader has the right to remind the person sharing of guidelines, time consumed, etc. We don't give advice. We talk in the I, not the we or the you. Speaking from our own experience, if we want to respond to what someone has said, we do only do so only in terms of our own experience. I can only speak for myself, but whenever I did such and such, this is what happened in my life. We don't get carried away analyzing what caused our behavior or attitudes. If we were victimized in early life, we slowly learn to face and work through it in acknowledgement, acceptance, and forgiveness. We talk as those who are now responsible for our attitudes and actions and are willing to take responsibility for our lives and recovery. In sharing, rather than displaying our knowledge or insights, we lead with our weakness and give of ourselves. We avoid politics, religious dogma, and other divisive issues. We also avoid explicit sexual descriptions and sexually abusive language. We avoid dumping, self-pity, and blaming others. We don't take the inventories of others. That is, we uncover and work on our own defects, not those of others. We refer to our own experiences. We do speak honestly of where we really are today. We try to develop transparent honesty of complete self-disclosure, letting the other members know where we are currently, regardless of length and sobriety. We do lead with our weakness and take the risk of total self-disclosure. By attending on time and sharing regularly, 
we give of ourselves to others in the group. We get back recovery. Thank you. And I'll read um, my last thing that I read is usually as Bill sees it. Um, if you're not familiar with it, it's a collection of writings from Bill Wilson um, from A Big Book, 12 and 12, Letters, Grapevine, things like that. Oh, and AA Comes of Age. In our belief, any scheme of combating alcoholism which proposes wholly to shield the sick man from temptation is doomed to failure. If the alcoholic tries to shield himself, he may succeed for a time, but he usually winds up with a bigger explosion than ever. We've tried these methods. These attempts to do the impossible have always failed. Release from alcohol and not flight from it is our answer. Faith without works is dead. How appallingly true for the alcoholic. For if an alcoholic fails to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice for others, he cannot survive the certain trials and low spots ahead. If he does not work, he will surely drink again. And if he drinks, he will surely die. Then faith will be dead indeed. We agnostics liked AA all right, and were quick to say it had done miracles. But we recoiled from meditation and prayer as obstinately as the scientists who refused to perform a certain experiment, lest it prove his pet theory wrong. When we finally did experiment and unexpected results followed, we felt different. In fact, we knew different. And so we were sold on meditation and prayer. And that, we have found, can happen to anybody who tries. It's been well said that almost the only scoffers at prayer are those who never tried it enough. That um, took about 11 minutes. Now, I don't know about you, but to spend 11 minutes fantasizing about some woman that I had keyed in on, uh, I probably wouldn't have even noticed it uh, at the time goes by. And, uh, in fact, to uh, plan uh, for many hours a day on how I was going to masturbate either the next morning or that afternoon or that evening, and to plan uh, my next contacts with women I'd been having affairs with, um, to try to figure out how I was going to cover my tracks for uh, some assignation that I had set up. Um, spending hours on that kind of thing was never any uh, difficulty for me at all. And yet there's a part of me that, first of all, uh, resists spending 11 minutes uh, doing any reading uh, for the program, particularly on a daily basis, and uh, secondly, when you're reading, uh, it is really hard for me to stay in touch. And these are all things I've read many times. And yet, um, as you were reading, I was thinking, oh, now, wait a minute. i got to close my eyes. i got to really pay attention. And it just reminded me that nobody else can do this work for me. Uh, as much as grateful as I am that you all were reading, uh, in fact, uh, the person who has to do the work is, is me. And um, I can skip on it if I want. Um, I know I will pay a predictable uh, price for that. Um, this is a, uh, a series, I guess, of five uh, sessions we'll have together. And my general plot is that I'll talk a bit about uh, whatever the theme is for that section. It's on your program. Program. That's why I've got mine here, so I can stay focused. And also, um, after a while of talking, uh, shut up and uh, respond to your questions or your own experiences or, or whatever. Uh, because we are taping the 
need for using the microphone is strong, and and uh, I'll get it back to you, or we can pass it among ourselves, whatever uh, works best. I uh, was sharing uh, with Bob on the way in that one of my uh, images uh, from an AA tape I've listened to is that, in our case, uh, sexaholism is a disease spread through the ears. And uh, what happens is uh, you're just going along leading whatever life you're leading, things going the way they're going, and then uh, somebody says something and uh, you hear it and you identify with it and all of a sudden you who were not a sexaholic the second before are a sexaholic. And and the virus has entered your ears and it's a permanent virus. It's kind of like herpes. We know about that. And it's uh, going to always be there. Um, and um, that's what happened to me. I uh, got to a point where my life was so totally out of control that I was sitting in a counselor's office with my wife, uh, who had ordered me out of the house at midnight the night before. And she looked at me and she said, after I had just said to her, well, I guess I was the kind of person who had to be involved with more than one woman at a time and in a sexual way, uh, she said, oh, well, you're a sex addict. And even as I say that to you right now, I get goosebumps all over my body, uh, which is a typical reaction when that virus enters the ear. Um, and I knew that I had been called by my correct name uh, for the first time. It wasn't that I was totally surprised uh, that there was such a thing because I had uh, colleagues who had uh, been on the front page of the newspaper and uh, with their arrests and some of their uh, stories. And um, I certainly knew that some people's lives would be out of control around sexual areas. So, And I was not an addict, but for reasons that I'd never quite figured out, I'd always been fascinated by uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. And I had professional reasons to be uh, interested in AA, but uh, I knew my interest went beyond that. I never figured out why. It was sort of a mystery to me. And when um, the uh, therapist looked at me and, and she said that, I, I suddenly, it's kind of like everything clicked. And I think for the first time I experienced what we talk about, what that virus really is, which is identification. Uh, that I identified myself as as that kind of person. And at, consistent with what I said, my own experience was at that point I've never been able to go back. One of the things that says in AA, and it's certainly true in my experience, is that um, once we know we're addicts, we are totally responsible for our behavior. When we didn't know we were addicts, that's different. Then we were... Um, you know, powerless over lust or alcohol or whatever it is, but lust in my case, and our lives were unmanageable, and yet, and all of us had opportunities and, and inclinations to manage it, to cut back, to control, to hide, to, you know, swear off, whatever uh, mechanism we had chosen. And and it wasn't working. Uh, once I knew I was a sex addict, um, then I was responsible, because there's a solution. And we have this solution in our program. And and I knew enough about AA to know that. I didn't know much about AA, but I did, I did know that they had a solution that worked and that once an alcoholic 
identified as an alcoholic, they were responsible for their drinking after that, and the same with being a sex addict. Um, and yet, the resistance to that is profound. Uh, about, I've been sober about five years, six years, I guess, um, and I was uh, meeting with a therapist who was evaluating me for a professional evaluation. And uh, so we went through all the tests and everything, and, and this is a fairly eminent person in an eminent institution, and, and I was in his office, and he was just talking about uh, the results of their studies. And he said, you know, David, I don't think you're any risk professionally, and he said, especially as much as you keep, he said, I can't say that per se in this report that I don't think there's any chance you're going to go back into your activities because, you know, I'm held responsible legally and I have to cover myself. But he said, I really don't have any concerns about you. And he said, and if you did ever act out against again sexually, you'd be a perpetrator. And I remember sitting there just kind of shocked by that word. Me? A perpetrator? Uh and it, and even after six years of hanging around this program, there was a part of me that still wanted to deny that the obvious thing, <laughs> that, that I not only was a perpetrator, but more importantly, once I knew that I was a sex addict, and once I had a solution, if I ever chose to not use that solution, then I am doing so in all the negative senses of willfully and maliciously. Um, and that's what a perpetrator will do. And my sponsor uh, got a reaction like me out of me that same way once. Um, we were just talking on the phone. I suppose I'd been sober a year or two. And he said, oh, well, David, you know, sex addicts are boundary invaders by definition. Now, he was saying, I think actually we're talking about somebody else. Uh, but I, I thought me, a boundary invader by definition. And then I began to look at sort of the boundaries I had crossed, not only mine, but also others, time and time again. And I thought, oh, yes, <laughs> I really am. And that's part of the identification process that, that goes on in our, our meetings or in sponsorship or the various things that happen. But that's not when this story began. And, and the overall theme is showing up and looking good. And... For a long time, I was definitely showing up, but I was showing up in a form that I thought uh, was needed. Uh, what it took some time in sobriety to realize was it was always the form that I wanted, um, and I do indeed have a self-centered disease. I feel, uh, looking back now, that I can uh, pretty well trace my uh, sexual uh, acting out to age four or five. Um, I have had children go through that age. I have grandchildren coming up on that age. I have nieces and nephews who have been through that age, and, and it still startles me to look at a four- or five-year-old kid and realize that at that age I was getting going on a disease that uh, really distorted my life uh, until I was 42 years old. And... When I'm talking with a kid or meeting a kid who's six or seven or eight years old, realizing how deeply I was already into my addiction. Uh, I didn't know it was an addiction, of course, then. But realizing how deeply I was into my addiction, uh, 
at the age of these little kids. And by the time I was 10 and took what for me was my first uh, real drink, which was masturbation, um, I have always identified totally with the stories of alcoholics or cocaine addicts or other people I've known over the years who talk about being hooked on the first time they used or the first time they drank. Um, and that it so totally transformed their awareness, their sense of their self, that they were always trying to go back to that experience. And that's definitely uh, what I felt. Um, when I was 10 years old, I can remember as vividly as if it were last night, the bed, the room, uh, the house, uh, where people were, what I was doing, how I did it, and and the emotional feeling of the impact it had on me which was, oh my God, whatever phrase was in my mind, I don't know that, but this is incredible. I've got to have more. Um, so that was by age 10. And uh, my first fantasy uh, sexual partner was my mother. Uh, I was very ashamed of that. Um, and I don't know why, because there was no explicit sexuality behavior going on in our family. Um, and I hadn't had anything that resembled sex education by then. But somewhere along the line, I, I felt that taboo. And so I changed the fantasy over to a neighbor, um, mother of a neighbor. And eventually, uh, within a year or two, it was predominantly uh, girls my own age or perhaps slightly older or younger, but in the same range. Uh, what always was the case, though, regardless of what the fantasy object was, once I started masturbating, was there were always some fantasy object, uh, some image in my mind that was uh, part of the stimulation, which, looking back, was no surprise because I had been using fantasy images and a kind of a compulsive sense, I've got to have this since I was, as I said, four or five years old, I had a history and a reputation in my family for taking my clothes off in public. I remember being so pleased when, as an adult, I discovered nude beaches. I thought, oh, this is wonderful. Finally, I can just do it and not get harassed for it. You know, the thought that this might be a problem was not on my list of awarenesses. Um, and then I was, I had to look at uh, girls' body parts. I'm the oldest of five boys. Uh, for my young childhood, there were only four of us. Um, and I, there was something about me that just was fixated on, on girls' construction. And I would um, get disciplined for putting myself under the slide uh, stairs and the playground or otherwise trying to uh, voyeur in some ways. Uh, girls when I was young. I um, Part of the taking clothes off, I ended up acting out with other boys my own age when I was seven or eight. And um, it was sort of innocent discovery behavior on the one hand. On the other hand, I know that inside me there was a combination of this is really important to do and also, oh, I've got to not get caught. And I remember one time we were nearly caught by a mother who came looking for us, and we all scattered and got our clothes on. And and uh, I was really um, kind of exhilarated and shamed at the same time, uh, trying to get other g girls to address. Uh, I was a very shy uh, kid in many ways, and and I sort of I was more interested in the attempt and in the image than I was in any reality, and so. 
Uh, I don't know if the reality had presented itself if I would have gone toward it, but the attempt was certainly uh, in my head and, and the excitement. Once I started the masturbation at 10, though, everything changed in that regard because in order to have that feeling again, I had to, first of all, uh, have the images entirely inside me. They were just overwhelming. Secondly, I had to be private, of course, because it was a solitary activity and you had to clean up this mess afterwards and stuff like that. So I I had to engineer this private time to allow this to happen. To a certain extent, it could happen at night, but I found I actually liked doing it in the daytime, too. So so I had to kind of keep adjusting my schedule and then I had to keep it a secret and um, I would not. Uh, share that part of me, so I became, uh, I, I just had to pull myself apart from the other kids my age. And I took up sports that were solitary sports, swimming and, and cross country. Um, I became a, sort of a bookish sort. I probably had been before, but much more so. And isolated myself in reading and uh, the fantasies that would come from that. And uh, that triggered a whole cascade of, of things that led to me be more and more isolated s- to a certain degree physically and then also definitely emotionally and, and spiritually and in terms of letting anybody really see uh, inside of me. There was one uh, playmate, uh, well, I guess I don't know if you call them playmates when you're 12 or 13, but um, he and I engaged in in a mutual exploration and masturbation at one time, and I found it very enjoyable and disconcerting at the same time, and, and we stopped that. Um, I was always glad that I could answer those questionnaires when I was an adult, that I had had um, some sexual experience with the same sex, and at the same time it was kind of a... Um, a I felt awkward about it and shameful about it at the same time. And I definitely wanted to keep that a secret, too. I would never tell anybody why I, I would check that box on surveys in high school or college or whatever. The other thing that began happening uh, is in, I suppose I was in, in high school, because I remember the building, I was shown a piece of Pornography. It was a picture, I assume, of a nude woman. I don't know because, truthfully, nothing was identifiable. And by that time, I had a vague sense for for anatomy. Um, But it did get me going on a desire to see more. And as it happened, our next-door neighbor subscribed to Playboy, and so I had some uh, access to at least that uh, kind of uh, pornographic material. And and the, it fed into the fantasies, and I, I wanted the visual images, too. Um, I began to um, be more exhibitionistic about where I would masturbate and do it outdoors. And I, I was don't know that I was ever seen, but that desire to be uh, in, a, in a public place or out uh, sort of where there was some risk of being caught uh, began to uh, take hold of me. And I also had this fascination with being sexual as I was a teenager with one of the girls and that I was dating and yet I couldn't do it. And, and uh, I just, and I really didn't want to do it. I mean, I was very torn up about it. And I, and part of me I know was thinking, well, there's no need to really do it. You can have sex with them all you want in your fantasy life. And, and that's what I would uh, do much of the time. Um, when I was 
19, I finally did have intercourse, and I thought to myself, well, I've done it, now I have to get married. And I remember thinking at the time, you're so noble, because this woman was uh, a little bit older and uh, not necessarily um, going, just from terms of her background and interests, going to be the best uh, long-term partner for me. But uh, I, we were very much in love, and we really liked sex, and um, got through the first scare of a pregnancy and started being a little more responsible about birth control. And it was funny, I was never the one to be all that responsible about birth control. I don't understand that, but but she was. And uh, I do understand it now, I didn't then. Um, and so uh, we arranged to get married. And we were married about uh, later the next year, about a year later, not quite. And... Um, I remember the date of when we first uh, were physically intimate, and um, I held on to that date for a long time. Um, it was uh, an important day, and and in a later event that I'll probably mention in a while, um, I was scheduled to be married on that same day to an, another woman, and I thought, oh, that's really appropriate. Uh, fortunately, God intervened, and, and but I'll tell you more about that. Um, but that's the kind of craziness that would get going in my my head. The uh, so we did get married, and looking back now in recovery, I realized that a big part of my interest at that time was to ensure that I would have a steady supply of sex. Uh, and I guess we were reasonably sexually active, but within a year, both of us were interested in uh, having affairs outside of our marriage. And we found uh, books, uh, we're both kind of readers, and we found books that encouraged this kind of behavior. This was the late 1960s, um, and the open marriage movement was taking root, and we just uh, grabbed a wave and wrote it and, uh, and went off exploring that. Um, we did, uh, well, I'll just speak for myself. I, I certainly, once I started having affairs within a year, uh, it was not a secret inside our marriage, and I thought that was really great, and I just kept on doing it. Um, my wife uh, tried some of that behavior, and I basically could say she didn't like it. Um, it wasn't really what she wanted to do. She told me years later, after we'd been divorced, that uh, after the first affair, she really sort of gave up on our marriage and and really didn't want anything to do with me anymore, even though we had children and, and were, in fact, together another six years. And I remember when she said that, being really shocked because and all my, my mind kicked into gear and I said, well, but this was a mutual thing. We talked about it. It was very open. We, we all both knew about it. You know, we knew, but we could have kept track. If it was a problem for the marriage, we stopped it, you know, and all this kind of stuff. I had all these rationalizations just flowing back. And yet in my heart of hearts, I knew that actually I had done the same thing uh, that she had said, that I had uh, essentially ended the marriage uh, and with that decision to uh, go out and and in some ways never uh, came back to it. We did have a couple of kids and um, fortunately uh, she got involved, uh, fortunately for the kids, she got involved with someone and uh, we ended up in a group marriage. This was the early 70s. It was sort of the thing to do if you lived in San Francisco and Lord knows we wanted to be current. And... Um, 
So we had a group marriage for a while, but looking back on it now, it was a transition uh, between for between couples that she was essentially changing mates. And um, on Mother's Day uh, in 1974, we'd been married eight years. She told me she wanted me to move out. I was totally blown away. It was the first thing that had ever gone really, really wrong in my life because it never crossed my mind that we would get divorced. I shouldn't say crossed my mind. It probably did, but I really didn't expect it. And I was just really hurt by it. Um, I had also chosen an occupation, though, where being in a group marriage just wasn't going to work. And so I had been putting pressure on her to end this situation we were in and for us just to go back into our married life. And I think she probably correctly thought, that's not going to happen with you, you know. And and um, and she went on her way. And they've now been together 26 years and uh, we're in a situation to provide a stability for our two kids that I was not able to provide. And, and I've always been grateful that uh, my higher power intervened at that time in that way. I went on my way and uh, promptly got engaged uh, to someone that I've been having an affair with, uh, one of the many, but one in particular, uh, during that marriage as it fell apart. And as I said, we were engaged to get married on the date that uh, had been the anniversary of my first time of being sexual. And again, there was a part of me that thought there's something not right about this, but that was about as far as I could go with it. Uh, And then I went to do an internship in my profession and um, met a woman uh, with whom I promptly started having an affair. That was nothing new. And uh, I was totally smitten. And on top of that, she happened to get pregnant. Uh, and I had had a number of abortions, uh, so it wasn't that I was opposed to that. It's just something in me uh, sort of stopped. And I said, this is it. So I broke the engagement, um, which didn't totally tear me up because the one thing I had told this woman to whom I was engaged is that I did not want her acting out with any of my brothers. Now, To some people, that might seem like a strange thing to have to say to the woman you're engaged to marry. But in our relationship, it kind of fit in. And then she did, in fact, act out with one of my brothers. And I was really appalled. Now, I think inside I was actually really hurt. But I I didn't know that then. It took a long time before I could talk about that. But I was really upset. And so I used that as the rationale to break that engagement and get involved with the woman I've been having an affair with. So my current wife is the woman who was an affair I was having while I was engaged to a woman who was an affair I was having during my first marriage. Which I thought is a pretty good beginning for a sexaholic. I, I always thought that, that, and it turned out for a funny reason, uh, maybe not so funny, that that actually turned out to be uh, very important. Um, and we did get married. We only had one thing. She had had experience in her first marriage, it was second marriage for both of us, of, of multiple affairs on her husband's part. And I uh, had uh, experience of being her husband, essentially, doing the, doing the multiple affairs. And we agreed we weren't going to do that. And for uh, two years, I didn't. And, it, I mean, it was really tough because... 
there was one particular person that I had had a sort of summertime romance relationship with for a number of years by that point, and I would see only when I went to certain professional conferences, and and I just kept saying, no, no, I've made this commitment, I'm not going to do it. After about two years, I uh, resumed that affair, and my rationale was, well, this is not an affair that I began after Jane and I had met. <laughs> Ah, see, that's how the virus hits, that laugh, that's indicative of the virus. But anyway, and so I said, since this really began as a relationship before we were even met, much less engaged, that it, that I could, it would be okay. And, of course, it wasn't okay because once I had had that relationship, then I had another, and then I had another. And I had been... Um, Married about eight years, I guess, when one day, for some reason, I made a list of the women I'd acted out with, and I got really frightened. It was probably the first time, other than the fear of discovery, that I remember consciously being frightened of this, what was going on in me, because I realized the frequency of the affairs had sped up. That it used to be kind of every other year, and then it was every year, and then it was every six months, and... And it was, it was scary. I remember feeling, feeling scared as I experienced it. Um, on the other hand, it didn't stop me. Uh, I just remembered that feeling. The, um, I don't need to react to this, do I? Okay. Okay. No, as long as it's nothing I have to do. Uh, the other thing that happened was, um, I began to engage in relationships that were crossing professional boundaries that I knew I was crossing. There were some I could make excuses for and rationalize and probably would have even stood the light of day if I had held them up to that. And I had begun having relationships that were not acceptable uh, in terms of my occupation, and that scared me too. So I was beginning to get frightened, um, but not frightened enough to stop. Uh, God intervened, however, and I was an atheist during all this time, and I was raised an atheist. Uh, I was didn't have a sense of God, and and yet looking back now, um, I can see a pattern that I'm well on many of the things I mentioned, but a pattern I'm very grateful for. And I had a relationship with someone that not only crossed professional boundaries just really nicely. Thank you very much. But also, um, I realized because of that distress inside me, I had to stop. And when I tried to stop it, uh, I became suicidal for the first time. Now, I had always had suicidal thoughts, but they would just kind of float through. But this was getting really, I was really scared. And I went and found a therapist, and I told him everything. And his response to the affairs was, well, you just need to let it not bother you so much. You need to learn how to manage your affairs. Um, and I remember thinking, oh, he's right, you know, and, and I just have to learn how to do this. But the important thing was I did, in fact, I didn't kill myself. I did, in fact, end that relationship. And, and for various reasons, my wife and I each had a three to four month trip. It ended up being three and a half months trip together planned that was going to start within a month of that. And we did that. And we went on this long trip together. 
both of us wondering, could we really make it together? Would, you know, did we really? Because by this time, there was a lot of fighting, a lot of screaming, a lot of tension uh, in the marriage. And um, it was hard on us. It was hard on the kids. Uh, we had left the town we lived in before because of one of the affairs I had had. Uh, and I moved out on my wife, and then I moved back in. And the woman I had the affair with mercifully said, until you're divorced, I don't want anything more to do with you. And so I thought, well, I better stay married then. And we moved towns and did a geographic and all that kind of stuff. And so the marriage had gotten really difficult, and we suddenly had this long trip coming up. We had a wonderful time together. The only thing that marred our time together, and it was the two of us and one of our kids, the youngest, uh, was she discovered the list of women I was sending postcards to along the way and confronted me, was extremely angry, and appropriately so, uh, forced me to write notes to each one of them to which she appended a postscript that I never saw, but I assume it was not friendly. <laughs> and we kind of got through it. It was terribly painful, but we got through it. And the trip overall was a great success. And we'd had a lot of intimacy, both just personally and emotionally and physically, and 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 just had a good time. And got back, and I remember thinking, wow. Finally, the the notes have all been written. The goodbyes have been put on paper. You know, I wasn't in contact with any of those women that I'd been acting out with. I really was going to be loyal to my wife. And at last, this was like May of 1988. In uh, July of 1988, the woman that I'd had the last affair with over whom I'd been suicidal and had ended it and all that and professional issues and all that stuff, contacted me and said she wanted to have lunch. And I, I knew that was really bad. But I thought, well, if I don't do it, she'll blackmail me. Uh, she'll uh, do something terrible. She had no history of doing this at all, by the way. And she said, I want to resume the affair. And I was absolutely petrified because I knew that I would. I would find some reason to do it. Um, we had just started seeing a new marriage counselor. Someone had been recommended to us. And we'd seen her twice. And on August 1st, uh, 1988, my wife uh, saw me going out to lunch with a woman who was a colleague. Um, she assumed there was something intimate. There was nothing sexual per se, but it was definitely a lust relationship. So she was right to some extent. But uh, but we literally just had lunch and went on our way. And that night, uh, my wife had what can only be described as a mental breakdown. Uh, she just absolutely lost it. To this day, I've wondered what the kids heard and how they reacted. And I, I, I don't know why, but it's never come up with a chance to ask them that. But I remember how I reacted. I was sitting. Uh, it was late at night. My wife had been throwing various things and screaming and and I was sitting in a blue velvet chair that's still in our living room today. And uh, and she was so upset. And I was sitting there thinking, I don't know what to say. I, I've, I had totally run out of excuses, of explanations, of clever ideas, of ways to respond that would, you know. And she wanted me to move out, and I had no idea. I didn't want to go through another divorce. I didn't want to lose another set of kids. And um, and I was just 
out of stuff. I was empty. The next morning, we called the therapist, and she fit us in for 4 o'clock that afternoon, a Tuesday afternoon, August 2nd. I'm probably going to cry. I'm probably going to cry. And we went to see her, and she met with me, and then she met with my wife, and then she met with both of us. And with me, when I guess it must have been the other way around. She probably met with my wife first, because when she met with me, um, that's when she said, well, you're a sex addict. My wife was really upset. Um, I think if I hadn't been so empty from the night before and so totally desperate, I probably would have found some rationalization. But in fact, I didn't have any. So... When she said that, I said, what do I do? And she reached in her desk drawer and got a phone number. And she said, call this number. It's a guy's office, but his secretary is used to getting these calls, and she'll give you the next number you need. And I said, okay. So um, it was some psychiatrist office, a guy named Harvey something. And... <laughs> I called, and his secretary, whom I later came to know, did in fact give me a number. She said, call this number. And it turned out to be the Sexaholics Anonymous uh, hotline phone number in Nashville. So I called that number. Now, I don't know if you have a hotline here, but what I did not know at the time, well, first of all, one miracle was that I'd been called by my true name. The, The next miracle that took place was, I called this number, and we went home, and uh, the phone rang, and it was a guy named Steve B., and he said they'd been checking messages, and he'd heard my message, and and, uh, I talked to him, and he said, why don't you come to a meeting? So I went to a meeting at 8 o'clock on Tuesday night, August 2nd. Um, and it was only later that I realized that to get a call right back when you call the hotline is a miracle indeed. I mean, it can be days, it can be weeks till you get a call back. And, and in fact, I got a call within probably an hour. Um, and I went into that meeting and I sat in a circle with about six other people, all men, one of whom knew me. Uh, he was the guy who'd been arrested and was on the front page of the paper. And, uh, so I wasn't totally surprised to see him, but I was really kind of chagrined that he knew me. Um, that was the end of my anonymity, though, right there. And uh, I haven't really found it again since. Once in a while I go looking for it. Uh, um, and I knew... That I was home, and um, in fact, um, um, when we got to the last words, uh, the solution had been, we were working from different literature than we have today, but uh, the solution had been written, and we got to the end of it, and there was that uh, line, we were making the real connection. We were making the real connection, we were home, and... uh, 
I started crying. And I cried a lot for the first few years. Um, now I just cry <laughs> when I talk about it. <laughs> but, oh, I cry in other times too, but, um, because I knew that since I was that five-year-old kid, I'd been looking for that, and I didn't know where to find it. (laughs) Even talking about it brings it all up, you know. And here I was, 42 years old, pretty eminent in my profession, and um, really screwing up. No pun intended. Really screwing up in a lot of areas of my life. <clears throat> and I had finally shown up, shown up in a place where uh, not only could I get help, but there were people like me, and they needed help too. So well, I didn't expect all the tears, but I definitely expected to stop um, right there. And uh, in the next uh, time, uh, I thought I'd pick up and talk about uh, what happened during those next two years. Um, But for now, it's time for me to stop and uh, see if you have questions. I think we have ten more minutes uh, in this session. But um, I'll stop and just uh, see what any of you want to share or ask or anything like that. Let me uh, bring the mic back. That's a very loud voice. Uh, I, I don't have a really big thing to do. I just uh, I just have a question, and it's not something I necessarily want answered. I just want it to be in me all day. I uh, really need to work on surrendering. And, and the thing is, I just don't know what that means. You know, I've been contacting people in my group, and that seems part of it. But I don't think that's all of it because I still have this, uh, you know, you say that, uh, that, uh, once we know we're addicts, we are responsible. And I've known I've been an addict practically since I was a little kid. And when I especially went about four years ago, when I came in to SA rooms, I certainly defined myself as an addict at that time. But still, I don't know how to take responsibility. I'm trying right now, and uh, and I don't know how to surrender. Um, thank you very much. That'll be a lot of what I get into is how I learned about that when I talk next. So I'm going to evade a little bit. Um, you know, knowing we're an addict, though, we can still be powerless and out of control. Once I knew I was a sexaholic, that means there's a solution. And that's when it changed for me. I think, looking back, I knew I was out of control. And I still, you know, I had a disease I couldn't do anything about. But once I knew I was a sexaholic, that's that's where the line, I think, gets crossed. But I, I think I'll answer this, at least my own experience with surrender, pretty thoroughly the next time.
thought uh, and just listening to your story uh, just a question is is by the time you found out that you were a sexaholic uh, your wife at that point had to have lived through I guess multiple affairs um, after she found out about the first one and then lived through multiple ones um, until you went to SA was it a manipulation to keep her in the relationship at that point um, or did she just constantly think that you had the potential to change and was waiting for the flower to bloom because um, I know I struggle you know with 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 that just with my wife and we've got a long history of marriage you know 20 years and uh, as she finds out about all these affairs um, she says well you're in SA now, okay? Um, uh, is it just that you know? Am I waiting for the flower to bloom? You know, is it just that now you're through having fun and you want to live with me? Uh, you want to now, you know, say okay? You know, I, I've sold all the oats. So how? I'm just curious on uh, during that time span when you got in the SA and now you say okay, I'm going to going to get recovery. What were you? How did you manage to to stay in your relationship? Um, I, uh, good question. I, um, I mean, I trash the relationship in every way possible. Um, on the way to the airport this morning, I asked my wife, what should I say to these people? And uh, she never ceases to amaze me with what uh, she feels is important. And she said, oh, just tell them that to hang in there, that it's really worth it. And uh, And that's coming from someone that I have no reason to have her want to be married to me at all. Uh, and so I guess, yeah, she must have seen that potential all along. Um, and I'm a really nice guy. Um, and I'm just totally out of control in certain areas. Um, I'll talk a lot more about that both in this next session and at lunch, though to specifically what happened between us. So uh, you'll hear more. But to just keep it brief, she uh, not only didn't leave, which surprised her, I think, as well as me, um, she happened to be the sort, she'll talk about this herself, of who dealt with problems by just ignoring them, denying them. And in some ways that probably saved us because not everybody can do that, but that was definitely, uh, she She talks in couples groups about that a lot. When we came in, after about 10 days or two weeks, she got involved in Essanon, and I am among those who can say, if that had not happened, I have great faith we wouldn't be married. Uh, there are other ways to do it, but in fact, that's worked for us. Um, but more about it, I'll give details. Other people. Where are we on time now? Three minutes. Okay. Hi, I'm Roger, and I'm a sexaholic. Um, I hope that you do talk a little bit more about Essanon. My wife and I of 25 years are getting a divorce, and I know she went to Essanon, and one of the things she said was all she saw was failure in there and women that were fully enmeshed in their husband's addiction. And I think for her... That scared her enough to say she just can't wait around. Um, she she can't trust that I might slip sometime later on. Um, I see a lot of men still with their wives, and um, 
I know I'm going to come out of the meeting today somewhat depressed because I don't think that we will stay, even though I would like to. Um, but I'd like maybe if it couldn't help me to other women that are in Essendon that are still deciding whether they should stay or not, I think that might be of some use because I think when we do change and we're committed, we're far better than we ever were before, and I know that's what I'm going to be. It just hurts so much not to share that with my wife of 25 years, so thanks. I will. I hope I'll say more about that. If I don't, bring it up again. That's all. Maybe one more and we'll stop with you. I'm Bob and I'm a sexaholic. Um, I had a long-term relationship with another woman. You know, it was most mostly on the telephone. Mostly it was phone sex and and sharing uh, relationships. Problems in my marriage and her marriage and 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 this went on for over ten years. And uh, my wife's having a great deal of problem of difficulty dealing with that. And also the fact that I've been unfaithful to her on multiple occasions and promised her, you know, faithfully and oh yes, I'll never do this again and blah blah blah. And she just doesn't. Her, my trust factor is just extremely low, and, and and she knows I'm going to these meetings, but it's it's hard to see, that, that, you know, my attitude changing, or hard, hard for her to see that what's what's going on inside me, and and having trust, and and she's just totally overwhelmed with thoughts of this other woman, and totally preoccupied. Where does she live? You know, da, 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 and she wants information. We we just spent forty bucks last night for hire a service to to locate this other woman. Because she had a unlisted phone number and and she wanted to know where she lived. Not that she'd ever call her, but and I'm trying to cooperate, but I just it's tearing us apart. This this thought she's preoccupation with this other woman. Yeah, um, that happened in our relationship too, and um, in this case it was no difficulty finding her. You just looked her up in the church directory. but um, but knowing about her, the details, focusing on her, and my wife had to deal with it by simply not coming to any public events with me for four months, which kind of hurt in some ways. Turned out to be really, really wonderful in the long run, because she couldn't be there without just getting totally enraged and uh, judgmental, basically towards every other female. Because she never knew, <laughs> you know, what she knew was that I would lie. And her experience of me is that I could lie to her and convince her. So she had to assume, even if I said no, that the answer might be yes. And for many, four months, as I said, she couldn't be around any uh, women. Um, that's been a long time. And, and actually, I'll, I'll share a little later. She got a phone call about two or three years ago from one of, uh, one of them that was truly astounding. And uh, I think we have to stop. So we'll continue this at whatever time we continue this. Um. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.